welcome to the first Mars on Life live from Massachusetts. Listeners, you are now listening to the podcast in East Coast time. Welcome to our newest Massachusetts resident who has come back already. Ryan, welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Obviously, the rest of this episode will have Sebastian, but for the time being, this is Mars on Life, East Coast edition. Ooh. After dark, yeah. So much for the uh, so much for the conversational intro, but I think it's just so exciting that we have our first. Uh, I guess you can call it remote pod, and it's like something I think in the world. Not to go on the tangent here, but like in the world of recording and podcasting, it's really hard to coordinate East Coast and West Coast time. And it's funny because I think a lot of podcasts that are you know everyone's in person the amount of coordination and, you know, adventures and recording from different coasts. Oh boy. And, uh, you know, so we've got some practice. It's definitely going to make it fun going into 2023. Um, especially between the time difference, which obviously includes a geographical difference. And then on top of that, now that we're using zoom, which makes everything sound so much better, and I'm like kicking myself for not getting into this so much sooner. I know Sebastian mentioned it a while back that we tried Discord, and that was one of the hottest messes imaginable. I think the weird thing, too, is just the fact that now we've got more opportunity for in-person recordings, which we haven't done since episode four. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, that's... Talk about that. I mean, outside of, like, a, a trip... Yeah, like... Yeah, outside of trips, yeah. It's insane to think about. And, you know, the, the, the topic of COVID, which, you know, I don't really want to get into necessarily, but really, what what a way to look back and realize how much COVID has taken away from us. So not to get dark and somber, but it's great to be back. I mean, listeners, I am staring Ryan in the face. And, you know, <laughs> it's funny for how many episodes that I've never even looked at uh, Matt or Seb. So... Yeah, it's really going to bring another dynamic listeners and maybe one day viewers. But yes, uh, don't want to, <laughs> not going to overpromise, but <laughs> you're, you're getting the full experience here. And it's really exciting. I'm excited to start this new journey of live Massachusetts episodes. I want to see, I want to hear Seb and Matt's reaction to Worcester one day, which, you know, we're working on it. So welcome to a new era. It was funny too last week because we, I remember Sebastian made the comment about how not imagining me moving, and it's like, well, it's the necessity of it. I mean, it's the two examples I, I keep bringing up with people are you and um, my good friend Cynthia Puga. The two of you are, are at such different ends of your, okay, not making you the old man here, but like both of you, you know, there's an age gap, but there's also just the fact that like you're sort of the further at the top of the food chain in terms of like who I knew in the CSUN journalism program. And Cynthia, I frankly had no idea back when her and I were working at a restaurant. So yep. it, it's like the fact that both of you made the same decision without knowing each other, um, without, you know, having any idea who the other person is. One day we'll, I'll get her on. That'll be the best. Um, at one point in time, I even thought of her being a producer for Mars on Life. Fun, uh, behind the scenes tidbit that has never been brought up before. So ladies and gentlemen, you just got a one of those like random 
How did George Lucas make Star Wars tidbits? Well, you got the Mars on Life equivalent just now. Um, <laughs> After Dark, yeah. It, it was the same kind of logic and from, that I just applied to myself and thought, well, I got to do the same thing. The question is where? And obviously, you know, talking to you, it was kind of like, well, if there's anything in Massachusetts, it sounds beautiful, it sounds great, might as well go for it. And so far I did. And you know what? I still remember cold 20-ish degree mornings in Santa Clarita when I was in high school. So when I walk outside and it's 36 at 7 in the morning, it's not all that surprising. I'm just like, oh, it's like a high school morning. Ooh, whoop, 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 de -doo, you know. You know, it got that cold in the SCV. I feel like uh, another level notch of respect is up to you guys. <laughs> the coldest <laughs> I ever felt in downtown, well, living close to downtown LA was like, one morning it was 36, and me and my mom were just like, wow. That was the coldest I ever felt growing up until here. And I did not know the SCV went like that. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's been great so far. And again, the prospect of getting to do more in-person stuff. Don't get me wrong, I'm going to miss that dearly with Matt and Sebastian. It's how this podcast got started. But, I mean, no, I'm not. I, I was going to quote Patrick Stewart, but then I realized I was going to flip the opening line of X-Men, and I didn't want to misquote him, so I'm not going to. <laughs> okay. Um. <laughs> okay. I mean... Yeah, as long as we get the boys out here, you know, we talk about the fishing trip, like, why not in Massachusetts, you know, like, so, yeah, I mean, listeners might be getting going to get tired quickly of hearing the word Massachusetts or Worcester, but too bad. This is a, this is a half of the half of the podcast. So welcome to Massachusetts listeners by force. So <laughs> just all, all I'll warn, though, uh, and, and Matt and Sebastian need to know this. The day comes where the four of us are on a boat out here, and say we decide to be a little close, a little too close to Martha's Vineyard. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be Quint for a whole day, and I'm not gonna <laughs> stop. So oh, you're, you're gonna see me in a hat. Hey, let me grab a hat so I can actually do the. There oh, we go. Uh, ah, goddamn You're gonna see me wearing a hat, and like I'll be sitting there, and I'll see the two of them. I'll go, Mr. Mayor, Chief, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I love it. Oh man, I, you, you just gave me like an idea for an episode too. Like, could take the ferry, you know. We could uh, sit, yeah, have our quint moment. You could tell us about the Indianapolis, you know. So like, yeah. Oh man, I am so hyped for a uh, uh, Martha's Vineyard summer. I'm oh, sure. Yeah. I'm sure Seb's gonna love when he hears that we're gonna do a, a, a boys' summer. What is it? A city boy summer on Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> Oh my you god. Might be right but, up the alley. Hey, well and, and and then hearing what Pete and Kenny have to say about it, because that'll be that that's I think that was where I first heard anything about City Boy Summer or yeah. whatever boy this or <laughs> whatever the hell. Exactly. And uh yeah, man, the uh that's part of the Massachusetts experience. You gotta go to Martha's Vineyard, we could look at Obama's house from like a gated fence. <laughs> got a mansion out there so yeah massachusetts mm. lore you know we can do an episode on the kennedys outside of their compound like yeah man goodness i'm trying to think when when does this episode drop oh my god okay so listeners uh they <laughs> yes uh when this episode drops uh as of recording we're technically an episode ahead no episode behind 
Um, but by the time this episode drops, there's going to be one more episode of Diet Nimby. And also another last episode of Diet Nimby. Yes, we have an episode five and a very special bonus episode that's not a standard bonus episode, but it's a bonus episode for the most part. Um, so tune into that. Uh, that, I won't say when it's going to drop, but let's just say the point of Diet Nimby is it's for the month of October. It's compensating for Halloween just because I had no freaking idea what our Halloween episode was going to be like with me moving. Um, so, which, now that we do know, I'm this is probably going to be our best Halloween episode yet. Um, but it also means we're going to have a pretty chalked, uh, chock full final weekend of October, including Halloween the Monday after. So, uh, listeners tune into that. Um, I know you've been busy. I know there's been a lot going on. Have you had any moment to hear any diet NIMBY? Yeah, I heard episode one and, uh, yeah, that's how far behind I am. Yeah, but um, I got catching up to do. But I feel like <laughs> I, I, it brought up a lot of feelings. Like I don't know. Like, like also like a lot of the. Uh, I feel like for as much and, and and alongside too, as much as the SCV has been talked about on this podcast, it took it to another level in a good way. Like. Oh, I, I okay. Like, yeah, no, 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 yeah. I was just like, you know, what is the SCV? Like, I don't know if it's necessarily, what is it, an enigma, but I, I really think in, uh, you know, in breaking down Drew Barrymore and Timothy Oliphant, uh, you know, I don't know what you want to call their performance, but in breaking <laughs> down what they did, I, I think it's also a really funny look at the Santa Clarita Valley, so... I uh, heard episode one, but uh, yet to catch up. Listeners, I hope you're ahead of me. There was something involving a very British man who was invested in something very American, yet also very... It's a breakdown of a certain genre. The genre of the superheroes. Yes, the... Uh... And really, uh, one of the most, well, you know, yeah, Superman and Batman, but I have to say, Watchmen, if you've seen or read any itinerary version of it, uh, iteration of it, you know how important Watchmen is. If you've seen that chunky book with the smiley face of blood as a kid, because that was my introduction, I saw it on my friend's bookshelf, I'm like, what is that? You know, <laughs> and then you see... And, and then you get into it and it's heavy stuff. And then, of course, you have the 2009 Zack Snyder film, which, you know, say what you will about it. But, you know, it, it it's something I, I, I actually think it's OK, but uh, I enjoy that, it. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then you have the HBO show. And this is where we land into our latest. Uh, I don't know if I even want to call it cancel. What is it? It woke discussion. But. Watchmen creator Alan Moore, and this is uh, an indie wire story. Watchmen creator Alan Moore spoke out again on the HBO adaptation, which won like 11 Emmys, I believe. Uh, Alan Moore told GQ uh, in a letter to him ahead of production, the series creator Damon, D Damon Lindloff, House of Dragon, Damon, 
Damon, Damon Lindoff, uh, the series creator, admitted to destroying the original comic to bring it on screen for a second time. Alan Moore said he received a, quote, frank letter from the showrunner of the Watchmen television adaptation, which I hadn't heard was a thing at that point. But the letter, and he's just recounting, he thinks the letter opened up with, uh, Dear Mr. Moore, I'm one of the bastards currently destroying Watchmen. And Alan Moore says that wasn't his best opener. And he says the uh, the HBO showrunner goes on to ask him uh, neurotic ramblings. Is uh, can you at least tell us how to pronounce uh, Ozymandias? Ozymandias? I couldn't even tell you the pronunciation right away. Ozymandias? Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I I only learned how to pronounce that through. Um, there was this PC game called Civilization. Oh yeah. And there was like I, I think I got like the fourth game. They somehow got Leonard Nimoy to like do all these quotes and basically be like the narrator. He would quote these famous lines throughout history whenever you developed some new technology. And I forgot how exactly the the line from Shelley uh, came into play, but all of a sudden there's the line of. Uh, and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Oh, there we go. Nice. Whew. Yeah, my, uh, my, my introduction to that term also was uh, also from uh, Breaking, Breaking Bad. Bad. Yes, yep. the ultimate episode, or third to last. Uh, awesome stuff. But uh, yeah, the, uh, the, the Watchmen creator was asking Alan Moore these questions, and... Uh, Alan Moore says he returned with a very abrupt and probably hostile reply. Uh, Warner Brothers, they nor any of their employees shouldn't contact me again for any reason. Alan Moore goes on to say he had disowned the work in question uh, because the film industry and the comic industry seemed to have created things that had nothing to do with my work, but which would be associated with it in the public mind. And he says, look, this is embarrassing to me. I do not want anything to do with you or your show. And, you know, he goes on to grump a little harder. And it, the story, the next paragraph says, how Watchmen won 11 Emmy Awards. And, it, you know, it just kind of gives uh, the background of uh, Alan Moore. It, for listeners not familiar with Alan Moore, I mean, <laughs> IndieWire has a related article. And this headline can tell you enough. Watchmen creator Alan Moore warns that adults' infantile love of superhero movies can lead to fascism. So, oh yeah, I heard it. Yeah, I heard that today. Yeah. So, if you uh, don't know what Alan Moore is, and Alan Moore, uh, pretty famous. Uh, I don't know if you want what the appropriate term he wants to be referred because he seems like he would t remind you, but he, you know, is known for V for Vendetta, um, Batman: The Killing Joke, mm -hmm. and he's also English. He's not American. Um, so, or I'm sorry, he lives in England. I believe he is British, but... Oh, he, he's got... Alan Moore has this very deep voice, and he sounds a lot like this. And he'll, he'll, he'll pull, it, pull a hair and be like, oh, it's a thread of the universe. Because um, he, he's very into, like... He, th there's a mystical side to Alan Moore that I've heard about. Um, and I, I, I've, heard, I've seen parodied on um, this great YouTube channel, Comic Pop. Which, it's weird to think about Comic Pop. I'm that much closer to Comic Pop because I think they're in New Jersey. God. 
Um, but they they love making fun of Alan Moore. They they respect him and love him, but they also think he he's to put it nicely, very eccentric. Yeah, you know, as somebody who you know, I have to say I'm not you know super familiar with Alan Moore's mannerisms, opinions. You know, I know, you know what he looks like though, right? Yeah, he looks like if um, George R. R. Martin was even messier and, and like darker, like more homeless. No, sorry, no offense, <laughs> but like Alan Moore does not really, you know, he does he doesn't clean up. Hey, you know, to eat your own, but like he definitely. Um, if this was the '60s, somebody we'd tell him to get a haircut, you know, and shave, shave that beard, get a haircut. But yeah, I mean, he's just uh, Wikipedia describes him as an occultist, a ceremonial mm-hmm. magician, and an anarchist, and you can uh, you know fill in the blanks there. And uh, so yeah, Alan Moore coming out and shitting on Watchmen, the HBO adaptation. I mean, it is his creation, but I think it's really funny that you know. Uh, leave me alone you know don't don't bother me i did not know that he had a sour taste from the movie Zack snyder's movie and it's like i understand when you're the creator of a work and you want to see you know you, you don't want to see it handled any other way but it just sounds like grumpy old man vibes but again i don't know if you think that alan moore you know Maybe, you know, and I'm not saying like in an anti-wokeness point of view, but if you think Alan Moore has any sort of point with the way that the HBO show went, <laughs> took a turn from, you know, the comic. Well, I did see the um, the HBO series, and I think it was because at the time I was so enamored by the universe. And I, I, I'm trying to remember, it was, had to have been, it was summer 2019 that it came out, right? the the tv show yeah i'm taking a look now but um yes october 2019 nine episodes um which funny enough i hadn't read the book until the december after um and that was mainly because i was like you know what the show i i was invested in the show and i think a lot of it it, it really just had to do with i was so enamored with the Zack snyder movie it's the only Zack snyder movie i i like i like this i like the snyder cut sorry fanboys well, i guess the fanboys would be clapping me i don't know anyway um i i liked it and, and plus i liked it because you know when i saw it i was at a point in my life where like I was in high school and we were learning about the Cold War, so it was cool having this like alt history Cold War movie to watch, um, and also just the fact that it had all these big topics of philosophy, but also like superhero, like big superhero philosophy that you would expect from like Batman or Superman. But no, it's this other DC thing. When the show came out, I was very curious because I was like, I can't wait to see what the Watchmen universe is going to look like post 2000. And obviously, you know, the world was going to be completely different. It's all one big alternate reality. The show, and that's, there's so many ways I could go with this because, and that's why I'm having some difficulty trying to like map out where Alan Moore could be in this whole, in this whole universe. Um, but he does have a very singular vision for his work. And and in all fairness, I respect him for that because he really does make 
universes, and I won't do the voice this time, but he really does make universes out of his stories that are very lived in, um, you know, very tangible, very probable, which I think is probably one of the scariest things about his work, um, especially between V for Vendetta and uh, Watchmen. Um, v for Vendetta I still haven't read, but I love the movie. Um, I've seen both adaptations of the Watchmen story. And and with Watchmen, it's also, because of its place in, I, I, maybe I won't go so far as to call it this, I, I won't go so far as to say the literary canon, but because there's plenty of people that will argue this is one of those books that's up there with, like, Moby Dick and, you know, just any, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird. Like, it, like the, the irony is that some of the themes that they were going for in the HBO series are themes that contemporary books that Watchmen is typically lumped in with, a lot of those themes sort of overlap, even though Watchmen, the book, doesn't really have any of those themes. Like, there's a lot of debate as, like, well, what's the politics of Watchmen? And, you know, we've talked about it with friends of ours about, like, yeah, maybe let's not look at Rorschach's uh, shtick and find yeah. it cool because it's actually like it's a little Trumpy. Um, so it, it, it's, you know, it's things like that, that I think transcend the book. And I, I, I will make sure I'll make sure that's the only time I say the word transcend in this whole discussion, because that, that word gets used a lot describing Watchmen that, you know, it, it transcends the comic book genre. Ooh. Um, and with the show, I mean, with the show, wow. Um, with the show, it like, it definitely taps into a lot of things that by our modern definition, you would, somebody would call woke. I mean, like it, it definitely taps into, you know, what does it mean to be black in America today? What does it mean to be gay in America literally any time? And Frankly, I thought it was fascinating just because those were subjects that didn't really come up at all in the original Watchmen. So, on one hand, there's a part of me that's like, well, I feel like it'd be interesting to discover those kinds of things in the Watchmen universe and, and see what they're like. But at the same time, there's so much that's unique to Watchmen, the original story, that... It's, it's like, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to make a commentary on modern-day America? Are you trying to make a commentary on the comic book genre? Are you trying to make just a sequel? You know, just basically try and not repeat Watchmen, but make a sequel? Because Watchmen's one of those properties that, like, for a long... Like, before Zack Snyder made his movie, it was, it was sort of deemed that Watchmen was unfilmable. Um, and after reading the graphic novel, I was like, wow, it actually did kind of tarnish my, my view of the Zack Snyder film. I still like it, but, and maybe I just need to watch the extended version, but really like there was a part of me that was kind of like, wow, the book really try not to say transcends, but there we go. It really goes above and beyond where the movie went. And I just think that the show had a lot to live up to. And it's not the first time that somebody's tried to make 
supplementary material to the original story. Because DC's done prequel comics that came out around the time of the 2009 movie that by all accounts, uh, I believe the, the clinical term for it was they sucked. And then in recent years, I think it was comic book author Jeff Johns, huge name at DC Comics, wrote a sequel called Doomsday Clock, a massive, massive event for the DC Universe that, for the most part, overlaps Watchmen with the DC Universe. Without giving anything away from Watchmen, the story, because I, honestly, listeners, yeah, this is something that's, I think Watchmen's actually getting close to 40 years old, my god, um, but, it, but, but none of it is like canon with each other, which is kind of funny, and given every, every fanboy is obsessed with canon now, um, and this show is meant to be a sequel, so, to the book, not to the 2009 movie, and for the most part, I think it succeeds, it does a good job, if we're following the beats of the original comic book, I don't know if it really checked out, if that makes sense. Like, I don't know if it really breaks down the comic book superhero genre in any way that is meaningful. Because, obviously, what comics were like in 1986 and 1987, around the time Watchmen came out, it was going through a revolutionary phase that was considered healthy, and good for the industry just because it was like now we're at a point where we can make comic books that can be a little bit more groundbreaking and a little bit more mature but they can also turn these really hammy campy characters into something mythical so the Watchmen characters were based on these original DC superheroes that for some reason Alan Moore and DC didn't even have the rights to so he just made up his own versions yeah. of these characters and around the same time period, you've got one of the greatest Batman stories ever, The Dark Knight Returns, come out. But then fast forward to now, and the TV show comes out, while comic books are kind of a, a nothing burger, but comic book movies are everything. Well, what on earth does Watchmen the series have to say about that? It didn't. It really didn't. At this point, I'd argue that The Boys is our Watchmen, because it actually has something to say about that, you know. You know, it's funny you, you, you mentioned the boys in that because I feel like I've seen some criticisms online and, not, you know, not very highbrow. Well, actually, I'm not sure like that, you know, the, the boys is too on the nose, you know, like the boys isn't really subtle, the boys. And, you know, I, it doesn't, it's not trying to like, you know, be this mysterious. I mean, if you've seen the boys, you'll understand, you know, it's pretty straightforward, but I've seen some people online that are just like upset that the boys is not more, I don't know, metaphorical. It's not more mysterious. It's not more subtle. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's what the boys necessarily even tried to be in the first place. But I think it's really interesting when you, when you, that you, that you brought it up because yeah, like what do you guys want? I mean, like you get mad at, you get mad at either thing. I mean, the boys not to switch off the Watchmen, but like the boys is pretty, widely acclaimed i don't know people who necessarily hate it but mm -hmm. you know i know that there's a lot of people that didn't really see the new watchman series but also the fact that it came out in 2019 and then you know october 2019 and then what happens less than a year later like george floyd and you know police brutality and then 
and then the scenes of like the Tulsa Black Wall Street and stuff look really yeah. different in perspective because people when that came out on HBO, I still remember like seeing the clip of the show on Twitter, like when it had just come out. And like a lot of people learned about that for the very first time. So I was one of them. Yeah. 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 So like I, I, I definitely, you know, I really wonder like if it had come out like a year or two later, like would we would out, we're not even talking about Alan Moore right now. Like if people would say, oh, you guys are just trying to like catch on to the social justice movement and stuff. It came out before that. We had these, well, they made it for a reason, but it came out before George Floyd. And, you know, not to go on the tangent of like, we had the post George Floyd era, because that's how we all treat it. But like, it came out in 2019 when things were still relatively normal, you know, before COVID and before everything else. So like, yeah, I, I my, my thing is like, you know, I'm not really mad about Alan Moore's complaints. I think creators just in their nature to just, you know, if I didn't put my hand in it, then I don't want it, you know? So, like, I think Alan Moore's criticisms are not so much about, you know, veiled criticisms about wokeness necessarily. His gripes just sound kind of like uh, old man yells at cloud, basically, at this point. But I don't know. I feel like just the fact that Watchmen and the fact that it won Emmys, too. I mean, like, I think the fact that Watchmen the series did so well. I really hope opens the door for more of these remixes, you know, uh, not to get my R's confused. I was going to say retcon, but like remix. So like, I, I really hope that, you know, we kind of take, take more of these remix approaches. You know, I hate that I had, as you were speaking, I was thinking of another show that kind of did the Watchmen remix of something. I can't think of it anymore. Something recent. I'm not going to think of it, but like the whole, like, was um, it also HBO? Maybe, yeah. Or was it the plot against America? <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, I, okay. Actually, no. <laughs> what I'm thinking of is, uh, well, and this doesn't really count the same, maybe, but like Westworld, like. Oh yeah. Like, look, look what happened to Westworld. Like, do you think, uh, you know, the, the team behind Westworld, uh, you know, the team behind the Westworld, um, what is it? The, the OG Westworld is, you know, thrilled that now it's like a, like some futuristic, cryptic, like future drama. I, I haven't seen the new Westworlds, but like you look at something like that and I think H and it's under the HBO brand. But like I think people are responding to it pretty well. You know, nobody's just like, why isn't this still in the West? You know, I, I love the, the term that you use, by the way, remixes, because in the Watchmen series, they do that with a couple characters um, a few main characters and also characters that are in like the history of the original book. Like, there's one character in particular. I, I'm, I wouldn't even share the name if I knew it. I've unfortunately forgotten the character's name, but he's, he's one of the old Minutemen heroes that basically precedes the Watchmen. He knows the comedian. He knows, uh, the first Sil uh, Silk Spectre and the whole time the character is wearing a hood over his head. At this point, listeners that know Watchmen probably know who I'm talking about. I think his name was like the Hangman or something like that. But he, he's got a black hood over his head and he's got a Hangman's noose around his neck. In the show, they he, he's, a, he's a black man wearing, I think he's wearing like white makeup around his eyes. And he's also gay. So, and he's living in like 1950s America. 40s, 50s. So, 
like though introducing those elements into the show i think added to the original story i think where alan moore's coming from i think some of it could be ego and some of it could be that he's been burnt one too many times from working with warner brothers and the fact that warner brothers owns dc and the fact that he's provided so much good stuff that they've adapted that has garnered mixed reviews in their adaptations like you know v for vendetta people love it but back when it came out it was kind of like oh it's like a matrix ripoff um zack snyder's watchman it was like oh it looks cool but the themes from the book aren't there um the animated adaptation of the killing joke pu um and i say that as somebody i say that as somebody that was kind of like meh on the killing joke book because i was like i'm sorry but I saw the movie, I saw the first adaptation of this that Tim Burton used for his first Batman movie. So it was a little, there was a part of me that was like, eh, it's, it's fine. It's an okay book. I don't know. Maybe he, maybe he would have felt different if it was like, I'm trying, I can't remember Regina King's alter ego in the show, but if it was like the name of her character and then it said, right? yeah, like, and then it said like, a Watchmen story underneath it, or yeah. a Watchmen anthology. Like maybe, maybe he would have been a little less mopey about it. But Watchmen Origins: Colon Sister Night, yeah, like yeah, something. You know, it's funny because this makes me want to go back and see his opinions on, you know, V for Vendetta and like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which has had some revisionist history in terms of the reviews. So like, I'd be curious to see you know, go back in his opinions on that. But like, I'm not expecting, you know, some, uh, some eye opening pointers from him. I mean, but yeah, this is, it's funny that, you know, I, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is part of his roster as well. And that wasn't well received when it came out, but people didn't think it was a good movie when it came out. But it's also had some sort of renaissance as well. And like, I don't know if he's even paying attention, but I don't know if you've noticed and like, talking about a different movie now but like the league of extraordinary gentlemen but the league of extraordinary gentlemen has had like some sort of like internet renaissance i'm not saying like people hmm. are like streaming it on netflix every day i don't even think it's on but like i feel like the attitudes around like that film have changed a ton i mean v for vendetta like you know everyone I, I feel like it's pretty firm but like i feel like the league of extraordinary gentlemen it's totally done kind of like a 180 or something like it's just so funny to see how that's transformed but of course if you're ranking alan moore uh ips there we go the word if you're ranking more alan moore ips i don't think league of extraordinary gentlemen is number one to give a little bit more backstory and and if i'm going too long just, just say so but um there's this article from bleeding cool that is scary uh it was posted almost six years to the day we're recording. Wow, that's creepy. Alan Moore exposes the corrupt secret history of Warner Brothers with Kevin O'Neill. And and for the most part, I mean, this just talks about basic history that has kind of already been out there, especially since pre-2010 when he was, a bunch of his stuff was getting adapted by WB. Yeah. Moore quit DC Comics as a mixture of corporate ownership of content their decision to add reader warnings to the covers of his books, and their choice not to re not to renegotiate his con his contract over Watchmen and V for Vendetta, now that they had begun to be published in perpetuity in trade paperback, so that the rights would never revert. He chose to withdraw his labor. 
Decades later, DC Comics would buy Wildstorm, who were publishing Moore's America's Moore's America's Best Comics line. And despite promises of a firewall between his work and DC Comics editorial, they interfered with his work on Tomorrow's Stories and A League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, The Black Dossier. He then pulled from DC Comics thanks to a pre-existing movie contract keeping his co-ownership of the comic. This is kind of important. After the producers of V for Vendetta of the V for Vendetta movie stated that Moore was on board with it, he wasn't. As a result of not getting an apology, he asked that his name not be used on the movie or on any other movie production he had no involvement with. He has described the relationship at DC slash Warner stalking him, constantly trying to pull him back, first with involvement with a Watchmen anniversary project, novel adaptations, trading their reversion rights for his approval of Watchmen sequels, and more. Recently, DC Comics announced that DC Rebirth, which is no longer a thing, that was like the DC Universe that I think was around up until maybe like a year or two ago, would bring the Watchmen characters into the DC Universe, and this time they didn't even inform Watchmen co-creator Dave Gibbons. Alan Moore and his lead co-creator, Kevin O'Neill, have been creating the lead Cinema Purgatorio strip for the anthology of the same name curated by Alan and published by Bleeding Cool's owners, Avatar Press. Again, he's very protective of his properties, and I think the philosophy and the messages that he has for Watchmen, for Fee for Vendetta, I think he's probably figuring, oh, they're not adapting it properly. There's, There's no way they can really capture the dark nature of V for Vendetta in this Matrix movie, you know, and to a degree that kind of came to be, even though I thought they did kind of a a few little funny things making V for Vendetta feel almost like an adaptation, or not an adaptation, but doing a lot to pay homage to the film adaptation of 1984, so much so that they got John Hurt, um, who played Winston Smith in the 1984 film to play the president of the United Kingdom in V for Vendetta. Like, like little, little things like that. Like I, that was actually all stuff I later in life was like, that's, uh, that's good. But I could just see Alan Moore just being like, you know, who the sucks. And with Watchmen, similar thing where it's like, it's not supposed to be about, you know, what, what does it mean to be a, a black female superhero? It's more like, Just what does it mean to be a superhero when you don't have powers? Or in Dr. Manhattan's case, when you do have powers. Like, what do you do? You're you're God on Earth. What do you do? The Dr. Manhattan thing, I won't give anything away with the show. Because believe me, that was something that, the way they handle it, I was like, oh, this is happening. Oh, this is where, oh, this is where this part of the story starts. And it it actually is really exciting. Like, I, I... I took full advantage of that when I worked at Warner Brothers. Um, yeah. And I, I I was almost going to say how I did it, but I actually won't because it, I mean, for all I know, I doubt you're going to like, we're going to stop recording and you're going to be like, I'm going to start episode one of Watchmen, you know, but. No, like, uh, don't, don't sweat it. But, you know, it, it, it's funny because like, and not to change the subject once again, but like when you mention the uh, criticisms of V for Vendetta being like this Matrix movie, is that because of a few slow-mo knife fights or is it because of Hugo Weaving? Like, I've never heard the the criticism that it's like, oh, the Matrix, but like, I thought my instant thought is not because of the slow-mo knives, it's because of Hugo Weaving, who's great, but... Oh, he's he's 
he's one of the best parts of the movie. I mean, part of the reason why I keep bringing up The Matrix is because uh, the screenplay was by the Wachowskis. There's a lot of speculation that you know the director of the film was a gentleman by the name of James McTeague in his feature directorial debut. There's a lot of speculation that this was sort of like a Return of the Jedi situation where they had somebody who was the director, but at the end of the day, it was the person who wrote the screenplay that was actually directing. So, like, with Return of the Jedi, it was Richard Marquand, but, you know, the Ewoks got in there because George Lucas was like, oh, they're really, they're really important to the story, these Ewoks. <laughs> when you watch V for Vendetta, like, there's a lot... there. It's exactly what you said. There's a lot of that, like, slow-mo, I know kung fu kind of techniques that are very Matrixy. But, I mean, it doesn't bother me the way I see it. It's like, you know what? It's all from the same house. It's all Warner Brothers. And this was kind of a golden age for them. So, the way I see it, if you're going to... Nobody complains when somebody watches Casino and then they watch Goodfellas and they're like, what's... Scorsese doing having this De Niro guy in all of his movies like what the hell you know first it's Mean Streets then it's Taxi Driver what is this bullshit you know people that do that with V for Vendetta and The Matrix it's like big deal like it's it's same house same directors same storytelling like okay fine it's just in a different world different universe different story yeah it works Alan Moore's beef with Warner Brothers, like, is he, like, sitting back and, like, laughing now and watching them, like, burn down? I was, I was thinking, like, is Alan Moore, like, I'm sure he doesn't care, but, like, I can imagine that if he heard what was going on or seen the mess that they're having right now, he's probably taking some delight in it. I, I wouldn't want to put words in his mouth, but, like, I... I would imagine he's looking at it and being like, this is everything I've been saying about this company for decades uh, coming out into the limelight. You know, it, it would come across as like a confirmation bias, but I mean, like, I'll, I'll, I'll say it. it. What's going on there is, and this had nothing to do with my being there. This this is strictly what I got from news reports. I knew things were, were going a little bit down the toilet pre-pandemic and I it's just fascinating to me how things have have declined and deteriorated yeah I know there's a lot of people excited now that old uh, Henry Cavill's gonna keep wearing the the tights of Superman I've never been a big fan of his Superman I don't know about you no I mean I, I guess no opinion I guess like he's he, he does the job but he looks the part yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm not crazy about him either way. I guess he's perfect for, like, this new generation of, like, you know, and I don't want to start getting into this either, but, like, I guess he's, like, the perfect counterpart to the Avengers, whatever you want to call their, not even cheesiness, but, like, I guess he's, like, the straight man to the Avengers, kind of like Abbott and Costello, I guess, if that's what you want to say it. But he's just, like, a little, because generic i guess i mean yeah so i'm not really a huge fan i mean i'm kind of partial to what's his name brandon routh the uh hmm. 2006 be only because that uh <laughs> he was in a movie that was filmed at my friend's house it's completely unrelated so <laughs> uh, so i'm a little biased towards him and also that was the 
That was the first Superman movie I saw, The Superman Returns. So Whoa. I really my Superman history was very twisted, but that's who I bonded with as a Superman, you know, fan. So I'm not saying I like Superman that much, but yeah, like these new Warner Brothers kind of the, the, the new Warner Brothers universe, I mean, from the get-go did inspire a ton of confidence. So like I always just viewed it as neutral. I mean, I I feel bad for what's going on, especially for like you know, sometimes I just sit back and think I'm just like Aquaman made a billion dollars and it was like one of the and I'm just like, oh, man, like I'm just like, yeah, like, I guess if that's what the kids want. I mean, I just feel like the boomer in the back of the room, though. So, you know, I still remember when it was Jason Momoa coming out as Aquaman in like the um, Justice League reveal and being like, wow, this might be kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then, you know, the excitement dies down and then, you know. And then etc. You know, I don't want to knock Black Adam. Of course, I haven't seen it. It looks interesting. And, you know, he's introducing a character that, you know, there's not a lot of people's radars. So I'll give him credit for that. Mm-hmm. But again, this is like the same kind of, I don't know. I, I, my thoughts on that is just like it, it's kind of cheapened because it is The Rock, because it's just like The Rock will be in any movie, you know, Skyscraper. Um, what's the one about the giant uh nintendo game monsters like come on like rampage like yeah so it's just like come on like uh, yeah i know he's he you know probably maybe the closest thing to like a big strong man but at the same time like be be more original than that like maybe you guys would save a few million bucks if you didn't have to pay him you know like (laughs) like and when they got jason momoa too like what was he coming off? I mean, I know he was what, Game of Thrones, I guess. Like, and he did a Conan the Barbarian movie that nobody saw. Oh yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess they really wanted to get a really away from like the whole Aquaman is lame type jokes that we grew up with, you know. But I don't know. I don't know if like we just weren't ready for it. I don't know if Jason Momoa is just not it. I mean, I'm not a fan of him in Dune, which is a conversation for another time, but. I don't know. Th- thoughts on the DC universe are for another time, but I I, th- I I hope that Alan Moore is getting some satisfaction out of it. I agree. And and the final note I'll make is I, I think Watchmen, you know, a lot of people have reached out to Damon Lindelof since this iteration of Watchmen came out, basically saying, oh, do you see yourself doing another type of sequel? Not necessarily to... Um, this version of Watchmen, but another sequel, like basically the idea was this was a sequel, but it featured characters from Watchmen. Like it, it it kind of, it, to some degree, it was almost a force awakens kind of story. Would you do something similar with other classic Watchmen characters or reuse some of the same Watchmen characters that were in, um, the you know, this latest show, like, you know, have Jeremy Irons come back as Ozymandias. It, it honestly doesn't sound like it's going to happen, and I think some of it is is fan pushback. Some of it is the fact that you know, with Watchmen, there's this expectation that it's this highbrow storytelling, and Damon Lindelof does have a track record of telling a lot of highbrow storytelling. Like I'll just say it, I think putting enough pressure on somebody to keep making sequels to something like Watchmen. Which again, on its own, is hard to adapt. You know, at some point, you just need to like 
turn around and basically say, you know, not everything needs to be a franchise. And in a lot of ways, DC in recent years, and this is DC on the TV side with Watchmen, DC on the comic book side with Doomsday Clock, when it comes to adaptations of things and retellings of things, <laughs> monsters, <laughs> um, like... I think there's just some there's just some of that stuff that we just need to say no we don't need to do it, and I think it's it's wise of Lindelof to be like yeah we don't need to do another one, right now, with a thing like Watchmen I think we should we should just cherish what we've got. That, that basically when I say that that just boils down to read the book, like the book the book in of itself is gorgeous and entertaining and engaging and. I, I it was one of the it was one of the last uh, books that I read pre-COVID, and it it just had me mesmerized reading it and flipping through every page. And and I, I say that more from the standpoint of just the colors popping off the page, the characters being just so twisted and so unlike anybody else I had ever read about, and just cherishing that. And you know I don't know introduce it more into the American literary canon. I, I feel like I feel like that's the kind of boost a book like that really needs. Because right now it's like a... It's not a niche thing, but right now it's almost like a... If you're, an, if you're some, like, dude on the internet who's our age, you know, you look at... Which is ironic, given everything I've had to say. Like, I, I, I mean, like, I talk about it, I come off sounding like a stereotypical Watchmen fanboy. I, I'm really not. When you get new classics, you need to say something about them. And I feel like with Watchmen, it's just more about, well, no, we just need to keep making more sequels and content. It's like, wait, no. let. There isn't a To Kill a Mockingbird cinematic universe, you know. There isn't a, a an American Psycho trilogy, you know, a franchise of films. Although, there is a sequel with William yeah. Shatner. Um, <laughs> Patrick, don't kill me. <laughs> um, but it, it's, oh no, you're not, you're Mila Kunis. Just let Watchmen be its own thing and just tell people to read it. And if they have a problem with a big blue naked guy, it's like, hey man, go to Florence and be, see a big tall white naked guy and no one's batting an eye over that. So didn't think our conversation would end with that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, listeners, uh, now you're listening to the portion of the show where I get to talk to Sebastian. Yeah, uh, how it how it do, soldier? How it do? Airman, thank you. Um, I'm not gonna get in a tiff over that. No, it's um, hell of a week, hell of a weekend. The greeting was uh, not unwarranted. I had actually just come back from Riverside. It, today is like one of the only few days where I actually have my little living space to myself to record before I actually jump on another recording for another show that I'm co-hosting in a couple of hours. So it's it's definitely just been a busy, busy time, but I'm really glad to sort of be back at the saddle and, and, and get a stitching in 
this portion in anyway before the uh, uh, the original upload date. I, I didn't think I would. I'm just glad to be back. What's what's the uh, the, the new show? The new show that you're going to be uh, co-hosting. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, hell, if if this is a sort of a soapbox segment, I can just sort of put my two cents in about it. Um, the show is called Good Times Never Last. It is not a podcast, believe it or not, although the audio archives are you know, podcasted and distributed in the same manner of which we do with Mars on Life. This is the first show that I've ever been a part of that has actually been live streamed. Hmm. Um, so it's through OBS. It's done on Twitch. It's done every Sundays that I want. I want to say about 7 p.m., 7.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Uh, yeah, no, if, if you'd like to check us out later, good times never last with an underscore at the end. Don't ask me how Twitch identifies their usernames, but, <laughs> uh, it's just one of those things where, you know, to harken back to the olden days of early internet and email accounts, uh, any of the suggestions you try to put are always met with, can we suggest with the, you know, one, two, three, four, five, no, I'd prefer to have just the original email that, I want because it's identifiable and easy to remember. I digress. Um, yeah, no, it's it's good to be back, but also good to sort of dip my toes into other uh, particular projects. I've just now got a text that we're setting up in his backyard, apparently. So hmm. if the mosquitoes are any indication of how hellish that's going to be, um, I'll take it as it comes. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even go into what the show was about. Excuse me. Yeah, um, no, I, I'm still, I'm still <laughs> waiting on, on bated breath to be like, okay, so. So we yeah. have um, sort of an established friendship going back 18 years. We met each other when we were six. We were in first grade. Um, and we were sort of tossing around ideas as to. Uh, what a show could be with the equipment that we that we have as of now you know we have our standard audio and video recording equipment i actually shelled excuse me i actually shelled out a good 60 to 100 plus dollars on video cameras oh and even though i don't have my video camera on right now if you can imagine what the equivalent is of smearing vaseline on a dslr <laughs> that's about the extent at, <laughs> at what you'd be experiencing and and granted now that we're recording on zoom it's beneficial because now we can actually do video episodes on mars on life um but it's a podcast uh unlike what we do here on mars on life it's mainly elements of uh you know self-fulfillment self-betterment not to be confused with sort of the Andrew Tate-isms, but the amount of story time that we do have harken back to our time spent in high school, primarily senior year, um, with the barrage of media that was um, influenced upon us during our time there. It also kind of comes into question the whole uh, attitude of individuals of that time. You know, I see a lot of it of people coming out of high school specifically senior year regretting the entirety of their high school experience and mm -hmm. the both of us really just want to ask why that is i'm not sure if i can't speak for you obviously but mm -hmm. i look back at high school as some of the most enriching fun times of my life both the good and bad and 
to the amount of relationships, both, you know, on a relationship level, as well as a standalone friendship level with my peers and my other associates, it's times like those that you really take for granted and kind of realize in your early to mid, maybe even late 20s, where you sort of maybe not so much miss the individuals that you fell out of contact with, but just miss the moments where you could get away with being ignorant and young. Um, and in tandem, utilizing those stories and experiences as to how we're being shaped now and what the message we can portray now to our audiences. So it's a good dynamic. It's a much more live and interactive dynamic. We do have Twitch chat and we do have our Discord server, um, uh, all of which are experiences that I can definitely take from this and implement it onto Mars on Life, hopefully. Mm -hmm. uh, but given that I've sort of been yammering on for a good five minutes uh the floor is yours <laughs> matt and i both already had a bit of a teaser for what was to come with using zoom when we interviewed and i, I actually don't i haven't asked if you'd listen to it yet i feel like that's an episode that of everything we've done recently i feel like that's an episode that you need to you you of all people definitely need to check out is um our interview with lisa d'souza Oh, I've I've uh, listened to it. Oh, you have. What, what what did you think? Phenomenal. Um, both in content, context, and overall audio engineering. It was a fascinating episode to record, and it was it was certainly a, a step in the right direction in a lot of ways. And and in some ways, it, it kind of felt good doing that episode. As well as you know, obviously, Diet Nimby being what it is. Mm. Um. Again, all from the standpoint of the last of the most and the most of the last, if that makes any sense, yeah. that I want to talk about Santa Clarita. Um, <laughs> because at this point, I just, it's so behind me. I was rereading my, um, I was rereading my final column for The Proclaimer, and I sweetened it a bit at the end, but the reality was at the end of what I had written, I basically said, look, I'm not going to be looking back. Mm. You know, wherever I go, I'm not going to be like, waxing nostalgic over my father and I used to pick up wild blueberries. Like, no, like, no, it's, it, I mean, right. No, right. It, it's, it's in the past and, and I'm in a new phase. So yeah, no, we, we all left our respective, um, not talents, but organizations to pursue bigger and better things. And, um, you know, you of all people should know Mr. Blue Checkmark. <clears throat> yeah, I was wondering oh, how, that, how that was going to come into play. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm just hoping you use the art that I gave you. I thought I had a great pun, you know, when I posted it in our in our group chat, because it was one of those things where I'm just like, buddy, it, you, you got a suicide to look forward to because now you got. <laughs> no, literally, I think for the most part, as morbid as it is the highlight of a journalist's career really an artist's career uh-huh is death you know the art becomes more you know worthwhile after the artist passes that kind right. of thing it's but i've always had this fringe thought that in a journalist's case mm. if i don't end up hearing from you i'm going to assume that they got you and I'm going to assume that you said something indi not indicative of the place that sponsored you to have that check mark, 
but more so like, uh-oh, Mancini blew the lid. Like, bye, <laughs> it was great knowing you. So um, while I'm immensely proud of you, it's one of those things where similar to, uh, you know, I, I realistically equate it to something as like getting a thousand subscribers on YouTube and YouTube eventually being like, okay, now, now you have monetization capabilities. There's more of a responsibility now that you have this, I guess, badge technically right? Um, to relay your stances and your perspectives uh, online. So, yeah, I mean, that's not to say that you won't make any mistakes, but it's I feel like now there's more of a spotlight because people kind of take that a little bit more seriously. I mean, I even though get... it's Twitter, even though it's Twitter and you shouldn't take anything on Twitter seriously, but I digress. Well, it's funny, too, because I mean, I've I've subsequently gotten not well, yeah, not including Twitter verified following me. Which is kind of odd when I look at that because it, their Twitter verified follows four hundred and twenty-three thousand people, or rather, I guess uh, four hundred twenty-three thousand accounts. I, I, I question whether or not that actually indicates how many people are actually verified. I feel like that's way too small of a number, but I don't know. Maybe that's a perfectly decent sized number of people. I don't know. Well, anyway, what I was trying to say was, okay, I got verified, Twitter verified followed me, and then two other people that are verified that I have no idea who they are, um, besides somebody that is clearly into NFTs, and... Uh, <laughs> oh, man, join the club. Somebody from New York who is followed by at least... Followed by a really weird combination of people that I follow, including FlexAlert... Teamsters mm -hmm. and Boston Mayor Michelle Wu. So you've got like a confluence of national, local to where I am, and local to where I'm from. I mean, I would imagine because if it's a if it's an elected official or any kind of, I guess Massachusetts pundit, no matter what political side. Well, I don't is, know what that's just. Say, I wouldn't even call. I don't even know who uh, they are. They. Could, I, I, I don't think even know if them abundant. following you. I was gonna say I think them following you is more so a matter of like if they're looking to spread the news, they have a credible source of you being an employee at your organization to do so. And I guess that was that would be my next point of like, well, that's kind of where you would take off if you would were to hypothetically be retweeted mm -hmm. by someone in that position of power citing a journalist from socal that uh, you know crawled his way to mass so I, I mean that's sort of the most logical train of thought that i have which right. again is really it's really cool looking looking at it from that lens for a long time i never took the whole being verified twitter blue check mark thing as something to be taken seriously only because there are so many people and organizations out there that are verified that, okay, they're noteworthy. Well, what does that mean? I mean, before he ever ran for president, Donald Trump was verified. Why? Because he was the host of a TV show and ran a business. So, but it's like, okay, but what, what, does, that, what does that translate into other than it's just letting you know that the actual person who tells people they're fired, has a Twitter account where he can tweet about uh, 
you know, Graydon Carter's dinner parties or tweet about Robert Pattinson and uh, Kristen Stewart's relationship back in the day, it doesn't compute from the standpoint of how is it an official thing that people can look at and say, that's useful. I think it's the, the sort of not pseudo journalism, but mm -hmm. we were discussing this when uh, it was myself, Drew and Matt, where he made, I think uh, Drew made this like uh, this comment where it's like, oh, yes, the lucrative post covid, uh, you know, online journalism thing has really been taken off. And I don't know why that that kind of stuck with me, but it's so true where people would get on like Medium or WordPress or their various miscellaneous blogs and attempt to go that route. And some would have great success at doing so, where it was in the attitude era of, well, anyone can theoretically do it. Mm -hmm. I think the problem is, you know, the, the main problem that led to a lot of these pseudo-journalistic downfalls or endeavors, ende pseudo-journalistic pseudo endeavors, the downfall of such, there we go, was the fact that it just wasn't interesting content. And then that's when you sort of realize that you don't have to dig quite as deep to realize that all you really need to do to get followers on Twitter is to just be funny. And in a lot of ways, it's by, I don't know, spamming pictures of eggs or seeing people just get decked in bar fights or roasting girls on OnlyFans. You know, I, I follow a plethora of, of pages where it's just like OnlyFans girls posting L's consumers posting L's when you realize just how low effort certain sects like S E C T S sects of journalism are. I think that's really where people stick their nose in the game thinking that it's just like, well, all I got to do is just type on a keyboard. I can't even feel in the first place to some surrealistic or, or post I, irony type tweet and you know the money will just come rolling in and it's amazing because it actually does work that way in some cases i think There's a lot some, of yeah. it is i think a lot of it is just like um memes past their point of the memes past their shelf life now that we're talking about it there's a uh specific account that i actually want to look up and see if it's verified i'm not going to say who it is um simply because they are kind of a yeah I'll just say it they're they're a pretty hostile account so I'm not I'm not even going to mention them out loud they're not verified wow okay fascinating I think too and 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 it extends further beyond journalists obviously but I think isolating it isolating it to people that work in media that are verified I mean this goes part and parcel with something that we've talked about it outrageous length and I've talked about it with Andrew and mm -hmm. the uh, touchdowns and tangents boys about it too where it's and it's just a habit of the journalism industry that honestly I think has always been there probably for centuries at this point um, at least in America but it, it's that idea that you know anybody can do it anybody can step in and say you know all right gumshoes we're gonna go crack the story and and you know <laughs> bring it out to the masses and right, right it's 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 a wonderful fantasy and unfortunately you do have a lot of people and some of those people are pretty 
prevalent in a place like Los Angeles, for example. Um, and I'm not trying to say any of this without trying, you know, I'm not trying to be snob, snobbish or have act like I have sour grapes because I'm not part of that clique or I'm far away from that clique. So now I feel safe. No, I, it's, it's, I, I was talking about it back when I was back home. Um, and to some degree I was, I was orbiting around that circle because you had actual professional journalists who, to this day, I should note, um, who work with pretty decent sized affiliates out there that are still not verified themselves. And some of them are working with some of the biggest companies in the world. There's definitely a lot of room for there being a confluence of the independent side of media and the professionals that doesn't matter if they have the blue check mark or not. To me, at least, it, it, it doesn't matter. Only because you, you do have a lot of people that work in media that are known public figures that do a lot of good, have a lot to say, but, oh, they're, they're not going to be bullied into having a check mark next to their name on Twitter because it's like, well, they've already been on Twitter long enough, they've been promoting it long enough, and they already have a base, a fan base or a listening base or readership, whatever you want to call it, um, depending on what emphasis, what type of journalism they're doing, that they can always fall back on thanks to whatever program or outlet they've been working with. So I just find it funny that, like, out of all the places that I've worked at, this is where I get the verification. Not the 100-year-old newspaper, <laughs> you know, that is award-winning and people do, like, to some degree people do know what the signal is um, in SoCal, but, I mean, for goodness sake, it was reported in, um, reported on in, I think it was the Columbia Journalism Review the New York Times and even BuzzFeed was looking into it years ago when there was the whole scandal with the publishers being, you know, having having very strange Twitter accounts, which is the most I'll say. It, it just listeners go back and read those stories. It's pretty scary. But yeah, no, I'm verified, and it's and it's weird because like all my group chats with other journalists, I have like the least followers, and I hardly tweet that much because I'm like, well, I don't have anything insightful to say. So here's my story about a teamster strike that just ended. It's a, it's a good evolution. It's a, it's a good stepping stone. I mean, I'm not sure how much of a blue check mark kind of resonates for something on like a resume, for instance, but I mean, you know, given that Journalism has found its way into various online communities and spheres, and people depend on it a fair amount at the touch of a button, no matter what app that you happen to be utilizing. I mean, it it helps. And for the years that I've dogged on it or have uh, described people with blue check marks acting of a certain way or as much as I still think the whole, like, journalism... Like, like that whole, oh God, I don't even remember that story or when it came out, but I do remember like the toll it took on the online journalism community where a bunch of journalists were laid off and then a bunch of people came out of the woodwork telling them to just, quote, learn to code. As horrible as a situation of like a job layoff it undoubtedly is, it warranted a chuckle. Not for the sake of them losing their jobs, but just so the fact that people could be so tone deaf over the internet that 
you know, it's it's sort of almost like, oh, well, if you're homeless, just sort of buy a house, you know? It's like suggesting like completely arbitrary solutions that in the most simplest of terms would make sense on paper, but have no touch of reality whatsoever. Like, you know what I mean? Like, why would you study a career only to be only to be let go and then uh you know fall into a new career that you have no experience with no passion about you know and while it is true that you know undoubtedly people should learn some i guess some like hands-on skills whether that be technological or actually working with their hands um like a tradesman or something i don't think that 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 career field is for everybody you know mm -hmm. and it's people work better in different sectors under different circumstances, whether it be physical or digital. Sometimes you have to tunnel through shit before you get redemption, you know, at Shawshank. So it's kind of like, I mean, there's, I, I'm looking at it right now. There's this great book by um, the, the recently passed uh, journalist, Barbara Ehrenreich. Um, she wrote this phenomenal book called Nickel and Dimed which I still have yet to read. Um, it's it's her best-known book, and it's basically about how does anybody in America get by with minimum wage or, or you know, starvation wage jobs? And she decided to basically create a whole new identity for herself just so she could actually try to get one of those jobs and live on, live on her own based on one of those jobs. And from what I understand of the book already you know it came, this book came out 20 years ago it was already beyond impossible then anybody now that is trying to go above and beyond with their careers and and not find themselves back inside a, a restaurant or a kitchen or something i mean you would hope something like a blue check mark would definitely keep them elevated but how how much of a guarantee is it i don't know i mean you got people that get fired from the New York Times for plagiarism, like, mm. there may, maybe there's something for them down the line, but does that mean they've got to, you know, corrupt their own principles for it? Right. Right. Yeah. Possibly. You know, I, I think it just kind of makes me wonder how many different ways a story can be covered. And while I sort of used to be a fan of the whole of, like, you know, if you're given a subject matter... There should be an infinite amount of perspectives as to how to perceive it. I, I've sort of fallen out of favor of that because I think that there's on, only so many ways you can streamline a car before it looks like the fucking Oscar Mayer weenie mobile in terms of like form and function. Uh, and that joke was, of course, plagiarized as well. No, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm giving credit to where credit is due. Uh, from like a YouTube commentator. Uh, but anyway, it's one of those things, but it's one of those things that I find issue with when it's a subject matter that's particularly overdone. And a lot of what I've been experiencing on, you know, I would say social medias, but I don't have any. It's more so just been like hearsay, like I, like I see it in the papers, hear ye, hear ye. You know, my friends send me like these posts or whatever. Hey, what's your thoughts on this kind of thing? Mm -hmm. And whether it be like some politico or someone trying to, 
you know, make a mountain out of a molehill and and enact some sort of social change. The reality of it that I see is this. It's like, I understand that there's going to be a distinctive left and right with different uh, ideologues online. And I also know that because it's online, it's already in a very abstract environment where, you know, it's not a debate. You know, it's not in a social scenario where two people can sort of hash out their differences and come to a compromise, which is I feel that the root of every argument should stem from. And people have just sort of forgotten this notion that it's just okay to agree to disagree so long as you don't end up at their house wanting to bludgeon them for thinking differently. Of course, I have to sort of double back on that remark because even in your your speech debates, even when you have your Ben Shapiro's up on their podium and individuals looking to challenge them, you know, on the, uh, on the auditorium level, like it's set up where the speaker automatically has that high ground and is not going to be swayed from his or her own principles. And no matter how many individuals stand in that line waiting to speak in the microphone about how that speaker is apparently wrong in his or her own ideologies, number one, you have the speak. like I said, number one, you have the speaker who is not going to be swayed. But number two, you have the cheers and jeers from the audience who make up a percentage of individuals who actually agree with stated opinion. So it's not so much that I see these like public debates both online and in physical circumstances like fruitless endeavors, but when you sort of walk away from these interactions after they're done with, like the whole instance with like Pierce Morgan and Paul Joseph Watson when they were going off on each other about how, you know, I can't even remember what the context of the argument was about, but basically Pierce thinks one way, Paul thinks another way, and they went about it on Twitter. And you I don't think really they get along on something, but but it's one of those things where I don't necessarily think that Pierce backed down from his point, but and I'm not here to cover internet drama that existed. God, what was this a year and a half ago? But in analyzing like the psychological aspects of how people converse. Pierce said his piece, walked away with a show that he still does to this day on ideologues that he still holds to heart. And Paul just kept ringing in the point, you know? It was like, I'm like, buddy, you're, you're kicking a dead horse while it's down here. I understand that the credibility of Pierce Morgan is sometimes uh, gray at best in some people's eyes, but holy shit back off of the dead horse that you're beating right now and to the spectators looking in it was one of those things where it's like if you were a fan of paul joseph watson or if you were a fan of pierce morgan i guarantee you neither one of their points swayed one side or the other to go the opposite side or the other and I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it's just a journalistic thing. I don't know if it's a political thing. I really don't even know if it's like a humanitarian thing. Not humanitarian <laughs> thing. Just a human thing in general. As I'm aging and maturing in life, I'm really starting to not understand the efficacy that some people are looking to establish with their arguments. Because they're not arguing to compromise. They're not arguing to find a common goal. They're arguing to 
to put their point across as the point to be put across and nothing really comes second to that so the the entourage of individuals who more or less i want to say like stemmed from like turning point usa like the young conservatives the young republicans yeah you know those particular movements um they really i guess the the, the counterculture quote unquote well it mm. no i i put this in the loosest possible air quotes okay it, it again i don't believe that this may have been the thing i think that people for their times that they've lived in across generations have established front groups mm. and uh organizations in general emblematic of you know hitting the streets putting their ear to it really you know enacting that social change and with the advent of social media it's gotten a lot easier you know it's gotten a lot easier for dennis prager to sit in his armchair by the fire and basically tell me why liberals are wrong without any context of the situation that's what's always kind of fascinating with just how especially more partisan media has evolved over the years you know you you go from having something like i mean i'll, I'll, I'll use this example you know you, you wind up with a show like firing line on pbs where you've got all of the biggest polluters and money makers in the world funneling in money on you know a a broadcasting system that is giving children Sesame Street, but then giving their parents who voted for Ronald Reagan or Richard Nixon um, the the musings of William F. Buckley. And who knows who he's talking to? He could be talking to Muhammad Ali. He could be talking to Groucho Marx. He could be talking to the Black Panthers. He could be talking to Christopher Hitchens. Like, he... This was a man who... And, and I, I use him as, as a example as a similar example to Ben Shapiro because I think William F. Buckley is everything Shapiro wants to be. Think of the dissenters of X religion, you know. Think of the televangelists of the world proclaiming that they can assist people. And again, whole other podcast episode, whole other topic. You get one dissenting opinion, they're cutting you off of the phone line. Okay. Yeah. And that's how they quote unquote win. Okay. And with something like Firing Line, it, it's basically what you see now on Fox News, where, and and Ben Shapiro has taken the step further. With Firing Line, William F. Buckley would have somebody on like Noam Chomsky or Norman Mailer, and basically have them present their views as authentically and as fruitfully as possible, and then turn it around in such a way to make it sound like it's their views that are so evil and they're channeling these views. How can you possibly defend these views? And then it winds up getting thrown back at Buckley for being the collector of bad takes. And of course he just tries to deflect all of them like, oh, oh what, whatever do you mean? And fast forward to Fox News and it's, well, we're going to put you down because we picked the least interesting uh centrist or liberal to represent a certain point of view Shapiro just takes it to the whole whole other level where he's not even getting anyone that could actually stand toe to toe with him Fox News doesn't even do that anymore either Fox News would actually back in the day would actually get eminent scientists intellectuals um, 
master debaters, if you will, and, and actually have them on their shows, Shapiro takes it to the next level of, well, I'm just not going to have anybody. Or, and if I am, it's going to be, you know, insert college student here. So, which doesn't really foment any actual good debate if it's going to be a random college student who, you know, you get a, you get a good soundbite from the college student if you're not right-wing media. But if you're right-wing media, you look at that and you go, oh, well, it's Ben Shapiro destroying another liberal college student. And it's right. like, well, hang on, that's... You never only, have... It's going to be in the eye of the beholder. That's not actually what we're seeing. What we're seeing is a grown-ass adult go up against college students and flout their superiority over college students because they feel they can. You never have a college conservative agreeing with Ben Shapiro, whether it be on... The number of issues that he that he has stances on, like that, doesn't make for good entertainment, okay? Because there's no bashing, there's no like eighteen plus, you know, gets fucked on stage kind of thing. Like th these titles are just they're so funny. <laughs> like I, I I can't stop like looking at him and being like you know, snowflake gets ha like ham fisted and and you know every hole I don't know I'm. I'm uh, spitballing. Um, but you never have, you know, a, a young Republican or a young conservative get on the mic and be like, hey, Ben, I agree with you kind of thing. Because A, it's not a debate at that point. But B, people click on these videos because they want their beliefs to be affirmed or they want their beliefs to be challenged, maybe, so that they could, you know, hate comment, oh, how much you despise conservatives in general yada yada ben ben is this individual that um you know he he doesn't speak for the rest of the world or or whatever um i don't know i've seen all these comments man and i think with youtube removing the dislike button i'm really like kept out of the dark for most of it so i really don't have a good baseline i hear you on that one uh um, I, I feel the same way um no you're right i mean that that's actually one of those things that I've enjoyed falling back on with old episodes of Firing Line. Uh, one of which I was actually, I know it, this is starting to sound like an episode of Know Your Enemy, where we're just talking about like uh, tactics of conservative media. But um, it's actually a great podcast. I think you'd like it. Um, but uh, surprise, surprise, it's two uh, lefty bros in New York talking about uh the history of conservatism but uh in all seriousness it's a great show but regardless um the way that buckley would have this show is he's got the stage there's himself there's the guest there's a bunch of young people that i'm sure he like abducted from stanford's uh hoover institution which is basically you know the big conservative think tank up there that i think at this point in time preserves a lot of the old episodes of Firing Line. Because Firing Line was around from at least... At least, I think, the 60s up until maybe the early 90s, if not the late 80s. I mean, William F. Buckley was like... he He's, he's one of the intellectual grandfathers of modern American conservatism. Back then, when Firing Line was around, there were 
it was almost unheard of. And even before Firing Line, Buck Buckley was the publisher of National Review. At that point in time, there were only like two conservative publications in the entire country. You know, you had a, you had a whole bunch of newspapers, a couple networks, and then conservative media literally consisted of two magazines, and that was it. And Buckley was running the charge with at least one of them. And, you know, so he's got the, Na the National Review. He then gets his own TV show with Firing Line as, as this, like, kind of oddity of, well, what is this conservative movement all about? And this is the American consensus asking this question. You know, it's, it's Snow White curious about the apple. And he, he would have like a little cadre of, of journalists that probably worked, or writers probably that worked for him at National Review, pegging these difficult questions or these very knife-throwing questions at a guest. Or he would get some other loudmouth um, pundit uh, to also be on the stage with him. And then they'd pepper at some left-wing guest, including, you know, there, there's a great 80s episode with a young uh, Hitchens where it seemed like the whole idea was we're going to gang up on this English Trotskyist, and Hitchens is just sitting there the whole time being like, I, I respect you, Mr. Buckley, because you're you're like God over here in the United States, but this other guy that you hired to really peg into me, I took notes, and he's a real schmuck, and I'm ready to go. The sad thing is, is that in a lot of ways it created the chaos and madness that we watch today, and now we don't even want to watch it anymore. Now we want to go to those echo chambers. Now we want to go, whether it's, you know, a, a, an echo chamber on the left or on the right, whether it's Chapo or Ben Shapiro. Like, it, it's, that's what you get when you do have such a destabilized society. We're living in a society, George. Um, a George divided <laughs> against itself cannot stand, mm. but, <laughs> but uh, the most we can do is look back on them and think, wow, look at how many people could smoke in a studio. Whereas now it, it's, let's just look at this boring ass, um, 40 year old Wunderkin who still thinks he's the world's greatest violin player be like, um, um, facts still don't care about your feelings. <laughs> like come on man come on man right and with a few minutes left I, I i hand it back to you oh man i don't think i could really end that other than um hoping that you could do a better job than than these individuals because i know that you're not you're not in this industry for clicks mm-hmm and that was a big thing. That was a big thing that we had discussed while you were on the road where, you know, the, the people idolizing like their hate clicks, like that's their audience. Like you're not you're not like that. You haven't sold you haven't sold out pretty much. And I feel like that that's what a lot of people end up doing when they receive that like modicum of popularity or at least the authority to declare that that's who they are. Roughly speaking, I kind of did the math. If we kind of want to end this off on, on a percentage, I think there's about three over like 350 million registered Twitter users. 0.12%. Interesting. Well, I mean, yeah. 
you know, wear it with pride, I guess. So. I mean, does it mean I'm going to tweet more? I mean, I certainly. I think you're. I think you're more inclined to now. Just make sure that you tweet something worthwhile. That's all we can really ask. I take in the public aspect of being a journalist just because it's that's part of the job for me. Is it's it is interacting with the public. Like I am. As as much as we complain about you know being frustrated with people, I'm a people person, so I'm I'm fine with the idea of having that presence now on social media. But anyway, Halloween's coming, and uh, before we go, are you gonna be me for Halloween? <laughs> That's to be determined. You've been listening to Mars on Life. Look up our show on Instagram and Twitter by searching at Mars on Life Show and give us a follow. Tune in to the latest episodes and bonus content from our show wherever podcasts are found, including Anchor, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Also, don't forget to head on over to the official Mars on Life YouTube channel to like and subscribe our work. This show's artwork, Happy Mars, is by Zachary Urberich while our intro and outro is Space Explorers by Kevin McLeod. If you keep going, you'll make it to Mars. <laughs>